Let's pray again. Father, we were just singing this song of consecration to take all that we are, including our hearts, and build your throne and reign supreme. And we pray that you would just arrest our attention right now, every member of our bodies, to be submitted to your word and to be engaged and to reflect on this truth. We pray may Christ reign supreme in the proclamation of his word right now. We pray in his name, amen. Well, good morning once again. We praise the Lord for just again another opportunity to gather here for worship. Um, I hope you don't take this for granted. You know, it's a real privilege to be able to do this week in and week out, especially um, during the times uh, like today when even Canadian government is shutting people up in prisons, pastors, and closing the doors of their churches and is not allowing them to, to meet. And here we are, week after week, we have this great opportunity to be encouraged and to encourage one another. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I think it would be helpful here for me to begin with a brief overview of the ground we've already covered in the last few months as we enter now the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. As you might remember, he opens up Jesus Christ here. This is the greatest sermon. Why? Because this is the greatest preacher. And unlike every other preacher who went after Jesus Christ, this preacher is preaching about himself. Right? No other preacher does that, ever. Um, no other preacher should do that, ever, except for this preacher. In fact, the way he composes this sermon is he just builds and builds and builds and builds in order to get you to the point where you would be like, I need that preacher. Because the preacher is talking about himself. And so he opens up in verses 3 through 12 with a statement of blessing. And he identifies the kind of people God approves for his kingdom. And as we studied some months ago, the people are, are those who are humble before God and merciful towards others. He, he deals with the character first of the citizens of his kingdom. And then he goes on in verses 13 through 16, and he talks about the citizens' identity and their influence in the world, right? You are the salt. You are the light. Therefore, let it shine. Begin to influence those who are around you so that they may turn around and they may long for the preacher. They may long for Jesus Christ, and they would glorify God who is in heaven. Now in verses 17 through the end of this chapter, he addresses, he begins to address the issue of righteousness, false righteousness versus true righteousness. And then he builds our need for righteousness, righteousness, which is not just external compliance to the law, but righteousness that deals with the heart, 
And this is from, from um, verse 21 all the way through the end. He's talking about murder, that murder is not just an external act. Murder is an issue of the heart. We kill. We slice people by what we think of them, by what we say to them. Adultery is not just a matter of a physical act. It is lust in the heart. And he goes on in swearing, keeping your word. It's all an issue of the heart, retaliation, and then love at the end of verse or at the end of chapter five. And as he exposes our lack of righteousness, he wants us to realize that we need him and we need his righteousness. And then in chapter six, he addresses two more themes, and that is kingdom practices and priorities. No longer are we looking for man's approval and praise, but instead we worship God and we look for his reward. So that's why he says, don't perform these things. Don't let your prayers or your giving or your fasting be done in order to gain attraction from someone like you, but do it out of utter dependence on God, longing for him to reward you. And then our priorities, priorities, he begins it with verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, let you have one priority, and that is to treasure Christ. Let Christ be your treasure. And so the point is that we need him. We need to treasure him. We need to put him first. We need to submit to his agenda. And only when we do that, then guess what? He begins with verse 25 and he says, you won't even worry. You won't worry about today. You won't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because you have a God, the father who cares for you in heaven. If you prioritize him, if you long for him, if you set his kingdom and his righteousness first, then he's going to take care of everything else. He's just going to add everything. And this is where we finished last Sunday. Now, in chapter 7, Jesus switches gears and he addresses Christian relationships. Now, Think about this. After addressing the most important relationship, and that is us and God in chapter six, the vertical relationship, now he's ready to talk about, okay, how do we relate to one another in the kingdom of God? If we get chapter six right, then seven flows right out of it. We'll get our relationships correct as well. Relationships with one another, Christians, and also the world at large in which we live. Now, think about this. If Christians were to pick their favorite verse in the Bible, what would it be? If you were to poll all Christians, probably the most famous verse is John 3.16, right? Uh, most Christians would probably resort to that. I know we have various Psalms that are our favorite or some other New Testament passages, and we're like, man, this is, this is my go-to verse. But in general, Christianity, if they were to choose a passage, John 3.16 would probably be their theme verse, the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, if the world were to pick its favorite verse, 
the world, not the Christians, the world, it would probably be Matthew 7, 1. Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge. They would just stop right there. That's good enough. Do not judge. Not many people know their Bibles, but many people know this verse. If you were to ask him, hey, give me a reference, give me the address, where'd you find that verse? Not many people would point to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, but they know that statement. Don't judge. Tell me what to do. Right? Who are you to judge? We've seen tattoos. Only God can judge me, right? And things like that. So, okay. Do not judge. They don't care about the context. That's not important. But for us Christians, we who study the word of God, context is very important. So we want to understand what this passage means for us. I want us to read and I want us to read all the way through 12, 7, 1 through 12, because it, it kind of sets the context for this relationship that Jesus is addressing. And he says this, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him in everything, therefore? Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, the question that's before us this morning is is this, to judge or not to judge? What are we supposed to do? What is Jesus here in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 calling his disciples to do? And I will propose to you this theme that we'll be dealing with this morning. Those who treasure Christ are humble and merciful to each other and walk wisely in the world. Now, where does judgment come into this place? Well, We'll look at four things. To judge or not to judge. What is Christ calling us to do? Number one, I want us to see that Christ calls us to stop all hypocritical criticism. Stop all hypocritical criticism. Number two, to gain clarity through personal repentance. To care humbly for fellow saints. And then to practice 
discernment in the world. Four things. I want us to begin with, with verse one. Stop all hypocritical criticism. It's a command. Verse seven, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And it is probably the most quoted text in the Bible. It is also the most misquoted text in the Bible. Seven, one is often used to defend a viewpoint that we should never judge anyone under any circumstances. What does it mean to judge? When, when, when the Bible says, not just in this passage, but in other passages, do not judge, what is God calling us to do? Well, the word judge means to separate means to, to choose, to, to determine something. In, in some context, it means to condemn, final judgment. In fact, this term has more than a dozen various shades of meaning. And we need to look at the context where that word is used in order to identify and determine what the actual meaning of that word is. So there's a difference between criticizing and condemning, or separating, or choosing. We judge every single day when we go to the store and when we choose between two kinds of paper towel, we judge. And there are various things that, that come into our mind that inform our decision, but we are judges right there. Is that a bad thing to do? Absolutely not. But we need to stick with the context of the Sermon on the Mount to find out, to conclude what kind of judgment that he prohibits here. And we know for sure that he does not prohibit all kinds of judgment. Why? Because already he referred to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that wasn't good enough to get them into the kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 20. That is judging. He's saying, you see that group over there? They're not good enough to enter the kingdom. Your righteousness must surpass their own. Is that judgment? Absolutely, it is judgment. He had called them to being hypocrites in chapter 6. Hypocrites who put on the show before others to perform their religious duties. 6.2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. That is not their proper name. That is a name that he gave them as a result of judging their behavior. Same thing happened in verse 5 and in verse 16. In the immediate context in our verses today, Jesus will actually go on to speak about some people as dogs and pigs. That's judgment. Later on in, in, in our Chapter, chapter 7, 15, Jesus warns his disciples to beware of wolves who come to them in sheep's clothing, which requires discernment. It requires judgment. It requires separation and choosing. In fact, in, in John seven twenty four, Jesus says this, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So he just flat out tells them, you got to judge. So we must ask, what type of judgment is Jesus prohibiting here in 7.1? Well, look down to 7.5. And he says this, hypocrite. You hypocrite. Singular. It's a direct address. So Jesus does not prohibit 
the proper use of judgment, but an abuse of judgment, an abuse of judgment. He is prohibiting all hypocritical judgment, not choosing and determining between the right or wrong, but he says, stop hypocritically criticizing one another. And, And remember, he's addressing his disciples. He's telling them, stop condemning, stop criticizing. Christians, we are called, church, we are called to discern, but we are prohibited from this condescending, self-centered, self-righteous criticism of one another, of our brothers and sisters. In our attitude with one another, we are not to be critical towards one another, trying to find fault with one another. Jesus says, stop it, don't do it. And and the the entire sense of this command, the tense that he uses here, do not judge, stop judging. May this never be done in your midst. Don't seek out another person's failure to justify or to elevate yourself. That is what he's talking about here. Such judgment, such criticism is the very opposite of love. And as we'll see, It's an indication that you're blind to your own condition. You don't understand the very nature, the very condition of your own heart. We, church, friends, Christians, we who have been shown much grace and great mercy, we are to be champions of grace, not champions of criticism. Why is criticism sinful? Why is this type of judgment sinful? He gives a reason for this prohibition. He says such criticism leads to judgment by God. That you will not be judged. Right? Such criticism leads to judgment by God. Here's the first issue. When when we criticize others, we occupy a role that's not ours to occupy. That's why this is here. Most often our criticisms stem from our judging the motives of the heart. A judgmental spirit will, will often attribute the worst possible intentions to another. You see something going on, it's like, I know why, why he's doing what he's doing. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, then, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before time, before time. But wait, for what? Until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. So what that tells me, what that should tell you is that we are not equipped, we are not in the right position to to judge the motives, to criticize someone for doing something because we think we know the reason We think we know the heart. He says, stop and wait for the final judgment. Only God knows the motives. So often our our analysis of this situation is so short-sighted, isn't it? We, We act like God when we say things like, you know, he said that because he just wants people to know that he's spiritual, that he's holy. Or, um, you know, she behaved this way because... You know, she's self-seeking and proud. 
What are we saying by that kind of statement? What we're saying is, listen, you may not know, but I know. And I actually looked inside that person's heart and I know what's motivating them to behave a certain way. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop this criticism. D.A. Carson paraphrases verse one this way. He says, do not assume the place of God by deciding you have the right to stand in judgment overall. Do not do it, I say, in order to avoid being called to account by God whose place you usurp. Don't assume God's role. As finite, sinful beings, when we condemn others, instead of being merciful to them, we pass judgment that only God is qualified to make. Why? Because we don't see everything. We don't understand the complete picture. Came across this poem that Ann Proctor wrote in 1800s. She says this, which I think illustrates the point. He, she, she writes in the first verse, judge not the workings of his brain or of his heart you cannot see. What looks to your dim eye a stain in God's pure light may only be a scar brought from some well-won field where you would only faint and yield. We don't know the full story. We don't understand. We, we think we do. We're tempted to, as sinful beings, if someone is failing right next to me, that makes me look good. Why? Because I stand out, right? And that's why we go on and then act like we want to care, act like we want to hell, but deep inside, we're like, if people are seen and the people are observing right away, they'll see that I'm more spiritual than they. And he says, stop, you don't see the full picture. Here's the second issue, though. The real goal and intention of the person described in these verses is not to help a brother. It's to condemn a brother. You're not dissecting. You're not trying to interpret the situation because you really care for that soul. You really care for that person sitting next to you. Your whole intention is to condemn. See that right there? Condemnation. And because of the hypocrisy that Jesus exposes here, this person pretends, pretends. Remember the word hypocrite. He says, you hypocrite, you're an actor. You put on the show. It's like theater to you. You pretend to be this caring brother or a caring sister. Let me care for you. Let me assist. Let's talk about this. Tell me what you're struggling with. And then what do we do with all of that information? Are we genuinely concerned for that soul to, to bring Christ into the situation, to help them deal with a sin, or do we gather all of that up so that we can go home and feel good about ourselves? Why? Because, man, we're different. We're not doing that. We're not struggling with that. We're trusting the Lord. We're believing in Christ. Look at this. You are assisting, pretending to assist, but you're happy. You're happy to see that speck 
you're happy to see that, that blemish. And what do you do? You just pick at it. I mean, this is what we're talking about. This is dangerous, God says. This critical spirit hurts and it damages the person sitting right next to you. And for that, Jesus says, look with me, you will be judged. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Notice, Jesus says that if we are critical, unloving, unwise in how we deal with others, God will deal with us in the same way. God will treat us harshly. This is, verse 2 is probably a proverb that was known around this time. Um, for in the way you judge, it will, you will be judged, and by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So uh, we know that because Jesus uses exactly the same saying, exactly the same proverbs in Mark chapter 4 in a completely different context. So the point of this proverb has already been established here in this sermon. The judgmental person, by not being gracious and loving towards others, testifies to his own arrogance. It shuts himself from God's mercy and his grace. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to notice something. This is not new territory. Jesus has been addressing this over and over and over again. Look at verse Seven of Matthew chapter five. Blessed who? The merciful. Those who have uh, this disposition to show kindness, to be merciful to others, to love others. Why? Because to them, God will show mercy. And then in chapter six, in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Same thing here. Uh, forgive us because we have this disposition to forgive others. And then in verse 14, for if you forgive others of their transgression, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, then your father will not forgive you your transgressions. Why? The point, why do you judge your brother or sister for whom Christ had already been judged? Why do you not act with mercy and grace towards them. You know, we often look down at others and think, well, you know, I would never do such a thing. I would never struggle with that. And so in, a, in our self-righteousness, we, we look down at them. But think about this. Have you considered that the reason you haven't done this or the reason you haven't done that or the reason why you haven't been tempted in such a way as that brother or that sister is because you haven't had the opportunity. You're just, you grew up in a different household. You dealt with different issues. You had different set of parents. You had different set of friends. And all of that, that whole package that we grow up in brings different set of circumstances and Temptations. Like, you know, we can be thinking, seeing someone struggling, just, you know, we're talking about big sins, you know, we, we label them. Big sin, uh, pornography, drugs, some kind of other addiction. And I might be looking at the guy who's struggling with drugs and he says, man, I have no idea, what's he doing? I mean, come on, get it together, man. 
right? Stop struggling with that. Why? Because I don't have that temptation at all, at all. Why? Because in God's sovereignty, he placed me in a completely different situation where I was never exposed. My, my, my friends were never exposed to that. And if they would, the Lord didn't allow me to stay in that place, in that situation. He would always remove me. So I, I never, no one even offered it to me once. Can you imagine that? Had they had the opportunity to, I can't tell you what I would have done. Different situation, different circumstance. So why do we look at that brother who's different from us or that sister who's different from us and pass judgment on them? The point is simple. Do you despise and criticize your brother when they fail or or, or do you humbly care for that sinning brother? What Jesus is is saying in in verse 2 here and reinforces, right, what he reinforces in, in verse 1 is that, you know, you will receive poetic justice. What you do to your brother will be done to you. Remember Haman? Remember Haman who built gallows to hang Mordecai? And when his evil got exposed, what did the king do? I don't even need to build new gallows. He did it himself. I will hang him right there. Poetic justice. What you were seeking to do to another will be done to you. You use this level or this measure, well, that's what the Lord is going to use to judge you. So Christian, remember, remember this. You will give an account to God, each of you. Each of us will stand before God and we will be judged And we will give an account for how we judged others. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It's going to happen. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 9 and 10. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Whether good or evil. Church, as leaders and as pastors, we will not cease to point you to God's grace. This is, this is our supreme priority is to point you to Christ, to cherish Christ ourselves and to set an example to do that. We all love his grace. Raise your hand, right? We all love his grace. Everybody loves his grace. We want to emphasize that. But how often do we forget that even so, being recipients of his grace, we will still stand before God and we will give an account to God. Not for our sins, which were dealt with by Jesus Christ at the cross, but for our stewardship. We've been granted grace. How did we steward God's grace? How did we handle it? How did we treat one another? What did we think of one another? What kind of measure were we measuring our brothers and sisters with? 
And, and, and one more thing here as we move on. God doesn't judge on the curve. He doesn't judge on the curve. He says, well, if you do it this way, then I'll do it that way. But if you don't criticize, then I'm not going to you know, criticize you. Look, here's the point. If you create your own standard of judgment, verse 2, by which you judge others, then God will hold you accountable for that standard. God will hold you accountable for that standard. He laid down his standard for his disciples, and he says, listen, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the point is that we need to make much of his standard with how we relate to one another. We need to treasure Christ, and we need to value what he values so that his values would then become our own in our relationships with one another. So, is Jesus prohibiting all kinds, all types of judgments? No. We should be discerning. We should be wise. We'll see that in just a second. But my judgment must always begin with me. In being gracious and merciful, Jesus is not calling us, listen, he is not calling us in this passage to just be blind to sin. My God, it's okay. Brother sinning here, sister sinning here, the church, you know, we're all full of sinners, and so let's just all get around fire and sing kumbaya and just rejoice in God's grace and mercy because we have a great Savior, and we're sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so we're not going to worry about sin. That is not what he's calling us to do here at all. He's calling us to see clearly. So consider the second point, gain clarity through personal repentance. What he's calling us here, beginning with verse 3, is to analyze our hearts. Over and over again in the sermon, Jesus asks very perceptive questions uh, in order to probe the heart, right, so that we would know what's driving our behavior. And so he has two questions here. Look at this, Matthew 7. Verse 3, why do you look? And verse 4, how can you say? Why do you look? And how can you say? What is he exposing? Jesus is exposing pride. Pride. One whole, one, one, one who's prideful has no problem cataloging and condemning the sins of others. That's what he's exposing here. But that's only one problem. The one who keeps this record of wrongs and condemns others, he, Jesus says, has lost sight of his own sins and failures. That's what verse 3 says. And not only that, then, because he has lost sight and the ability to perceive, he also lost ability to biblically assess the extent of sin. He thinks that that little speck, that little blemish is, is, requires more attention than even my own heart. And look what he says here. He says how, um, verse 3, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eyes but do not notice the log? The speck and the log. Okay, speck. Speck is a splinter, sawdust. Very fine little material. It irritates your eye to be sure, right? There's a problem. It causes a problem, but it's a speck. It's sawdust. Um, log, log. Log is not just like a two by four. 
the, the word here for log is a beam. And not just a beam, but it's a load-bearing beam. Okay? It's the type of beam when you build a home that you put over, right, on your, in your house frame upon which the whole roof sits and hangs. That kind of beam, that kind of log. Okay, so it's very important. And he says this. You can only think of Jesus, right? Spending a lot of time with Joseph, maybe, being a carpenter. He's dealing with dust. He's dealing with logs and, and, and trees and all of that. And he's taking that illustration from, from his experience. And, and he says, there's dust. And then there's the beam. So how can you make a big deal of and criticize someone for having sawdust in their eyes when you're walking around with a beam a load-bearing beam in your own eye. Who says Jesus doesn't have humor? That's, that's what he says. Like, think about this. Isn't that ridiculous? How can you possibly think that you're in a position to correct someone when you're completely off yourself? And notice that both persons have sin issue here. That the speck and the log, they're both made out of the same material but one is completely inequipped to assist another. I want you to notice the the force of verse four. Look at verse four. He says, how can you say to your brother? Really, the, the feel here is like, how dare you say? It almost, it almost brings out this righteous anger in Jesus Christ. And he says, how dare you with a log in your own eye say, let me help you. Let me deal with your sin. I'm going to condemn your sin. How dare you? Here's an example of a situation Jesus might be describing here. Think about this. When a person criticizes another for, for sharing some kind of sensitive information with another person, when that person is known to be a chronic gossip, and usually that happens. Those who are susceptible to gossip, to talk about others behind their back, to air the dirty laundry, they get very sensitive. And they go after people who maybe mention just one or two things about them. They don't like it. And this is what Jesus is addressing. There are many other situations like that. This is just one that, that may speak to this context here. What blinds someone to the extent of being able to to see, not being able to see their sin and and, and their failure. It's clear here, it's pride and it's arrogance, right? We just read the story of Nathan and David. I mean, talk about being ridden with guilt. Talk about committing a series of sins for David. He welcomes this prophet and already he's probably triggering a lot of uh, emotions in his head, right? Seeing the prophet, like, why would the Lord's prophet come to me now? And he tells him a parable, tells him a story, and David has the audacity to say, man, listen, we got to put this guy to death. Why? Because he took a lamb and he slaughtered it and he needs to make this restitution. I mean, he already has everything calculated. Why? Because his own guilt is eating them up and he needs to justify himself somehow exalt the failures of another in order for me to feel okay about myself. And Nathan turns around and he says, 
Actually, you're the guy. You are the guy. John Stott, he says this, all too often, what we condemn in others are the weaknesses we dare not face up to in ourselves. Oh, this is, this is a burn, right? When you consider that, um, consider what are, what are some, of the, some of your things that get you irritated about others? Perhaps these are the very same things that you can't overcome and you're dealing with. What are some of the things that you're criticizing others for? These are probably the very same things that, that you maybe need to look inside and there is a log that needs to be removed. Jesus not only calls us to analyze our hearts, but to repent, repent of sin. Verse 5, first, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. First, this is, this is the urgency, this is the priority. Remember, we are in the section of priorities. He says, seek God in his kingdom, put him first, treasure Christ. This comes first, this relationship with God comes first. And because of this relationship with God then, you have this urgency to deal with your own sin before you go and try to assist someone else. Friends, it's easy to get into the word, to listen to sermons, and... Think primarily about how others need to hear this and that. But Christ is calling us to analyze and to repent of our own sins. And what does that require? That requires a lot of humility. How do you grow in humility? Well, the text tells us that we grow in humility by treasuring Christ. When you value Christ, when you value his agenda, it becomes your own. You become more sensitive to your own sins first. You're repenting. You're humble. You gain clarity. You will actually be able to properly see how to assist someone else. You begin to show mercy. You begin to forgive others rather than condemn. You will stop pretending. You will stop playing. You will stop accusing others in order to justify yourself. So when you see a brother sinning, don't look down on him is the point. Look in the mirror first. Don't condemn, but analyze your heart. But notice something. This is to be done first to stop all criticism. You must analyze your heart. And only when you gain clarity through personal repentance can you actually help another, which brings us to our third point, care humbly for the fellow saint, care humbly. Here's the point. The speck still matters. Okay, The speck still matters. Jesus is not calling us to overlook the speck in light of the log. Jesus is calling us to deal with the log first. And then he says, look at the, the wording here. First, take out, and then you will know. Then you will see clearly. Then you will have vision then you will have perception how to properly deal with sin. Not calling us to overlook sin. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. But unless we are mindful of our own 
sinful tendencies and maintain a posture of, of repentance instead of helping others deal with their sin will only be hypocritical judges. Only those who treasure Jesus Christ in their heart, because that's the context here that we're dealing with. You will be then properly caring for others to come alongside and to assist and to point them to the word and to point them to the grace that's available in Christ to point them to their savior, to plead with them to forsake their way of sin. We are, after all, dealing with eyes. One of the most sensitive organs in our body, if not the most sensitive. It requires gentleness. It requires humility. Look what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brethren, if, any, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, it's a command, restore such a one in spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Listen, Paul recognized our tendency to be harsh with those struggling with sin, and, and he says, when you do that, you deal with gentleness. Deal with gentleness. And look at the difference between those who are spiritual and those who are not. He calls on those who are spiritual to care for fellow saints. What is the determination whether they're spiritual or not in this context? It's humility, isn't it? It's humility. They recognize that they are always vulnerable to failure, which draws them even closer to the Lord and makes them more gracious to one another. That's the description of someone who is spiritual. The opposite of the one who is spiritual is a person who feels very confident, person who feels very strong. They forget how vulnerable they are and how easily they can stumble. Their perceived strength is really their weakness that blinds them and makes them ineffective ministers. They're blinded by pride, which then causes them to judge and criticize others. So church, we're not called here to stop caring. We're called to care. Listen, go and, and help each other out. Encourage people to forsake sin. If you see sin, Matthew 18, Jesus will tell us, go, confront, tell it to your brother, bring another to, then tell it to the church. That's why church discipline is a real thing. It is not criticism as Jesus portrays here. It is a real thing. It is a biblical thing. We must do this. Why? Because sin must be dealt with. But the way and the manner in which it is dealt with, we analyze our hearts first. Remove the logs before specks become visible. Now, I've titled this sermon to judge or not to judge for a reason. You see, while Christ commands us to stop all judgmental criticism, he doesn't want us to reject every form of criticism. In fact, in verse six, Jesus calls us to judge and he says this, practice discernment in the world. Practice discernment in the world. Now, what is going on here in verse six? Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Another, another very famous Verse. So we have dogs and hogs here and holy pearls. Like, what are we looking at here? Let's look at the parts before we bring in the whole. So dogs, dogs, do not give what is holy to dogs. And I need you to lay aside 
your contemporary idea of a man, man's best friend. That is not what he's talking about. Today we think of dogs like these cute little cuddly creatures, and, and they come in all kinds of sizes. I mean, you want a dog that's this big, you can order one. Okay? You want a big dog, you can buy one. Okay? That is not what he's talking about here. Jesus is referring to wild dogs who are scavengers, of whom people are afraid because back then they would attack people for food. This is the kind of creatures Jesus is talking about here. So, so remove this whole idea of dog as, as we know it today. Pig, pig. Again, don't think of little pink piggy that you keep in your bedroom and that you call a friend or you name and, and you feed them. That, that's not what he's talking about here. Okay, pigs are, were unclean animals in, in Judea and in the Jewish system. And he's probably referring to wild boars here, swine, rather than you know, a pig that a Gentile would actually own for food. Pigs, they were abomination to the Jews. They were unclean. And so if you put this metaphor together, pigs and uh, dogs here, so the, the idea communicates uh, uh, and points to someone who is dangerous, someone who's vicious, someone who is unclean, who is selfish in their appetite. They will devour you so that when you give them something that's holy, give them something that's clean, they will trample it under their foot and rip it to pieces. And the word here, trample, is not just to step on, but you know when you really don't like something, you step on it, and then you do this. Like, that's what he's talking about here. When, when you throw whatever this holy and whatever this precious and, and valuable thing is, when you throw to them, there's a group of people who will respond this way to you. They hate it. So another question, what is this holy thing then? What are these pearls? Well, the holy thing um, is really something that's separate, something that is dedicated something that is different than the rest. And it could mean just about all kinds of things. But this pearl, it comes from the Greek word margarites, where we get the, the proper name margarita or rita. And it means precious, pearl, precious, valuable, extremely valuable. And, and plenty of explanations are given to describe what holy is. And I think this context, it helps us to understand the meaning of this term. Many commentators, if you look at them, they would describe this holy. Do not give what is holy to dogs. They would say, do not throw the gospel, the, the kingdom of Christ to others. But listen, when we look at the context, right? He's not really talking about proclaiming the gospel. He's not talking about evangelism per se, Jesus is talking about value. He's talking about treasure. In verse 24, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he's saying this. If you are centered on God, if you're treasuring God, then your path, verses 22 and 23, will be full of light, the treasure of God. You're either going to treasure God or you're going to treasure money. You can't have both. 
So the call here in chapter six is to make God alone your treasure. Here's the ultimate value. He should be our ultimate priority. That's why we don't worry because there's more life to us and to our cause and to our purpose than to simply to find something to eat and to find something to put on. You seek his kingdom. The whole context is about valuing God. Ultimately, it's about treasuring Jesus, the God we know. So when you think about what is holy, what is precious, the pearl of great prize then that Jesus goes on to in just a few more chapters in Matthew 13 to describe that's linked to the kingdom of God. He says, what you value, Jesus Christ, who is your master, who is your Lord, will you throw it to pigs to be trampled on? Will you take this treasure and offer it to someone who will turn around stomp on it, and we'll rip it to pieces. So in our first part, the command here is to stop criticizing your fellow brother or sister for whom Christ had been judged. Stop judging one another because our precious Lord was judged for him already. Instead, humbly serve and help them. Now in verse 6, the command here is to practice discernment towards the world. Don't take this pearl of great price. Our precious Lord, Jesus Christ, who is sacrificed for our sins and cast it to dogs. He's just too valuable. Our Lord is too valuable to be ridiculed and to be mocked. Some who we preach Christ to or try to help deal with sin in the context of one through five will only become violent towards you, Jesus says. And in that case, you need to stop offering Christ. You're putting him to shame. Dogs and pigs will not recognize the value of God's son. They will mock it. So even though it's just a little tweak, but the supreme value is not just the gospel, it is Jesus Christ. The message is never more valuable than the Messiah. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value, this precious pearl of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So church, is Jesus precious to you or not? Is he valuable to you? If so, you will be careful that Jesus Christ is honored and he is revered not only in your own heart, but wherever you bring Jesus to. And when folks mock Christ, instead of treasuring him, be discerning, judge, judge properly. Do not put Christ out to ridicule. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and he knows he will be rejected. He says, go preach the message of the gospel. Go preach the message about me. And then he instructs them and he tells them, if people in whatever city you enter reject you, shake the dust off your feet and leave that city. They're not worthy of me. When they begin to ridicule me, they're not worthy of me. Paul did the same thing all throughout his ministry. If you want to read one account, go to Acts chapter 13 in verses 44 through 46. Same thing happens. And he says, since you 
ridicule Christ, I'm turning around and I'm going to the Gentiles who will honor, who will pray, who will submit to Christ. So what do you do with people who reject you? Well, look at Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 7, right there in our context. What do you do? You ask, you pray for them. You pray for them. You plead God's mercy so that they may see. You continue to love them. Verse 12, and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want to be treated. You continue to love, but you don't offer for Christ to be trampled because they ridicule and they mock your Savior. But here's the question as we close. Do you think your testimony of Christ is in jeopardy of being rejected? Think about this. Do you think your own personal testimony of Jesus Christ is in jeopardy of being rejected? Or is your problem, is my problem lack, right? Not the lack of discernment, but that we're not casting out any pearls at all for people to even begin to reject. So verse six here is not a license for us not to preach the gospel, not to preach Jesus Christ, not to evangelize or to care for one another. If you don't have zeal for Christ, then this verse is absolutely irrelevant to you. Be discerning. So friend, do you struggle with being judgmental, being critical? Are you more likely to condemn the sins of others than confess your own? Do you find more joy in putting down than lifting up? Or does does being just feel more righteous to you than showing mercy? If so, you need a new heart. You need a heart of humility, that which is filled with the love of God. And guess what? The judge of all the earth, he stands ready to give you that heart to renew you, a heart that treasures Christ above all, that ceases to criticize others for whom he died. A person with such a heart, he will consider and and he will deal with the state of his own heart first and then he would come around and humbly care for another. Such a man, such a woman discerns when to offer Christ or not because they treasure Christ as the pearl of great price. So may the Lord give us such hearts, church. Treasure Christ to be humble and merciful to each other and to walk wisely in the world. Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. We thank you for Jesus Christ. As we walk out of this room, may we treasure him above all else and may we care for one another. Help us to repent of our own sins. Expose it to us through your word, through the spirit that is operating in our hearts. And may we look to him. May we repent, may we seek to genuinely care and assist one another, not to condemn, but to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We praise you for your word. Amen.